You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, good evening. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 26. I see we have a few visitors here. Welcome. We are glad to have you. yeah, what we do here is what we, uh, what we do for sermon series is we pick books and we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, so that's what we're doing this evening. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, and tonight uh, we're going to be looking at the account of the Lord Jesus Christ healing a blind man in two stages. Now, this miracle is a, a unique one. It's It's one of two miracles that are found only in the Gospel of Mark. They're not found anywhere else. Um, And it's unique uh, because in addition to only being found in Mark's Gospel, the miracle we're going to look at this evening is also the only miracle that Jesus performs in two steps. It's the only one he does that in, two steps. And as, as you'll see in the text, Jesus performs this miracle in halves. When he first touches the blind man, the man's vision is only partially restored, and it takes a second touch from Jesus in order to restore his sight fully. Uh, Now, that's strange, right? It's strange, and it's okay to say that it's strange, uh, because this is the only time Jesus ever healed like this, and and later, toward the end of the sermon, I'm going to attempt to answer the question, why? Why did Jesus do it like that? Um, But as I've already stated, Uh, This is a miracle passage, and if you've been here with us through this study of Mark, you know what that means. It's a miracle passage, so I'm going to take a couple of minutes and remind you of the significance of miracles. You guys know that the New Testament calls miracles signs and wonders, right? So they're signs. The miracles of Christ are signs, and signs are meant to signify, right? Signs are meant to signify something. Signs point to something beyond themselves. They point to bigger truths. My number one thing I've been saying is the sign that says Portsmouth 20 miles away points to something greater than itself. It points you to Portsmouth. Again, how much greater, we don't know because Portsmouth isn't that great, right? But still, something greater than the sign itself. So when Jesus performs a miracle, we are to look beyond the the, the bare fact of a miracle and look for some spiritual significance. We're to think about Jesus' miracles and from them draw conclusions about who Jesus is and why he came to earth. Or you could say this, we are to draw conclusions from the miracles of Christ about Jesus' person, his character, and his mission. And when we consider these historical, factual accounts concerning Jesus performing miracles, we see that they reveal at least three things to us, all of them, at least three things. One, the miracles reveal the compassion of Jesus, that he has compassion upon sinners. Second, they reveal to us the divinity of and messiahship of Jesus. They reveal his identity to us. And third, when we push beyond the literal aspect of the miracles, we see that they reveal by parallel and by foreshadowing something about the mission and work of Jesus and what he came to do. So tonight, I hope to show you that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God who has come to give sight to the spiritually blind. But not only that, I hope to also show you that though his disciples, that would be us, often have a blurry vision of the truth, Jesus will patiently and gradually give more and more clear sight to his people 
because he is faithful to do so. So with that said, as a sign of respect for our God, if you would, and if you are able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. This is Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him, Jesus, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are ignorant and in desperate need of your instruction. So we ask that you, according to your grace, would be kind to us this evening and open our hearts to receive your word. Grant to us that we would pay close attention to the word preached and that we would have hearts that are glad to receive and quick to believe the truth. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You guys may be seated. All right, so some context, right? We, always, we don't ever just want to drop in on a passage. We don't know the context. What's going on here? Well, you guys remember from last week, or if you weren't here last week, pretend, right? You'll remember that uh, in verses 14 through 21, <laughs> Jesus has just rebuked the disciples for being hard-hearted towards him, right? He rebuked them for having a form of spiritual blindness. They've seen Jesus, the disciples have seen Jesus perform miracles, and they've heard him teach many things. They've been with him for about two years now, uh, but they haven't yet processed what it all means about Jesus and about his mission as the Messiah, right? That they should, the disciples should be much further along in their spiritual growth than they are at this point. But they've been slow to actually pay attention and digest and think through all that they've heard and all that they've seen from Jesus. Right? But remember this, don't forget this, except for Judas, they're all actually believers. They haven't rejected Jesus they are his disciples. He picked them. He chose them out of the world. He told them to follow him. They are, they, and they are. They are following him. They've just been stubborn so far. And they've been slow to piece everything together and come to a robust faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they are believers, but they're weak believers. And they don't yet understand Jesus or his purpose the way that they should. Right? So you could say this. They see but they don't see things clearly yet at this point in the gospel. So remember that, all right? The fact that this miracle in our text happens immediately after Jesus rebuked his disciples for having eyes and not seeing is important for us to understand the spiritual meaning behind this miracle. So hold on to that. We're going to come back to it later. But in verse 22, Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples came to a town called Bethsaida. And Bethsaida was a town on the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee. They had just sailed there. And so Jesus and the twelve get out of the boat. They go into this fishing town, right? Just fun fact, Bethsaida means house of fish, right? So they go into this fishing town, and as usual, what happens? A handicapped person is brought to Jesus, right? I heard one preacher say, 
whenever kings go somewhere, how are they greeted? With cheers and gold and flowers everywhere. But when the king of kings enters into a town, how is he greeted? With blind people, right? That, that, that just struck me. I wanted to share that with you. But in this instance, a group of people bring a blind man to Jesus. And, and they begin to beg him to touch him. What they're doing is they're begging Jesus to heal this man. Now let's consider the man for a moment. We're not really told anything about him um, explicitly except for the fact that he's blind. I personally think that verse 24 leads us to believe that this man was not born blind, but rather had become blind later in life. And I say that because the first thing he says is, I see men walking around, but they're like trees. Or I, rather, I see men, but they're like trees walking. Right? So he had some frame of reference for what men are supposed to look like and what trees look like, which makes me think that this man was not born blind. But something must have happened to him to become blind later in life. Now, a word about blindness. Um, blindness was a lot more common in first century Palestine than it is for us today in the 21st century in America. Right? Back then, there, there wasn't a lot of medicine, and disease was a huge problem. So people could lose their sight by getting a severe eye infection. And with a lack of hygiene and other factors compared to what we have today, it's not hard to reason through and see that getting a diseased eye probably wasn't that difficult. Um, not only that, but if you got into an accident that damaged your eye, there were no eye doctors, right? That didn't exist yet. There were no eye doctors who could perform surgery on you, right? Bob Knox's did not exist back then. Um, so sadly, blindness was not that uncommon. Now, I'm not saying that everywhere you go, there's just hordes of blind people in every town. I'm not trying to imply that. But I'm saying that it was more common back then than it is today in our region of the world. It was more common. It was sad. Uh, and still today, you go to, like, underdeveloped countries, and you see blindness being more prevalent there than it is here. Um, but, man, what, what, a, what a terrible thing, right, that it would be to have to endure blindness. Um, some of us have great fears of going blind, right? I know... I used to. I used to sit around as a kid, and there was a blind girl in my class, and I would think about how awful it would be to go blind, and I would be kind of afraid of it. Or you watch a movie, and someone gets something in their eyes, and they go blind, and that was like a legitimate, like a thing that made me afraid. Um, I'd say that most of us have spent time at least thinking about how terrible that it would be to lose our sight. I just think about it for a moment, right? Uh, Sentimentally, you, you never get to see the faces of your friends again. Or you never get to see the faces of your family again, which some of you may like. I don't know what your family dynamic is. Uh, but you never get to see the faces of your family again. Um, you never get to look upon the faces of your children ever again. Or the face of your spouse. You never get to see a sunset again or a sunrise. You never get to look out at nature and see how beautiful that everything is. But not only sentimental things like that, but how awful would it be to not be able to get around by yourself? You're blind. Right? Most blind people are at the mercy of a caretaker to assist them through most of their life, especially in the first century. Right? Especially in the first century. Handicap accessible was not really a thing in Palestine back then. Right? The blind person in the first century would have been absolutely at the mercy of other people to help him. Right? The blind were helpless. They could not take care of themselves at all. It, again, it would be a terrible thing to be blind. Not only those factors I've mentioned so far, but blind people couldn't work. Most, most work back then was labor jobs. And you'd have to have sight in order to do most of the work that paid. So blind people often had to resort to begging, unless they were from wealthy families. So being blind essentially led you to a hard life of begging and poverty and loneliness. 
But even more than that, again, it just keeps getting worse if you really think about what it means to be blind in the first century. As I've mentioned in past sermons, to have any kind of handicap in Jewish culture would have considered to be a sign of divine anger. Right? You guys will remember in John chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus and the twelve walked past a man who was born blind, and the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Whose fault is it that this man's blind? Why is God punishing this man with blindness? Did he do something or did his parents do something? In Jewish culture, having a handicap, especially something as bad as blindness, was clear-cut evidence that someone was a sinner or their parents were great sinners, and so God was punishing them. So, therefore, blind people were considered, by and large, cursed by God. They were considered cast off by God. And so this blind man would have been considered unclean by most Jews. He would have been in a category that they referred to as the untouchables. Right? This is somebody you don't want to befriend. This is somebody you don't want to associate with. So this man is physically blind and had to deal with the hardships that came with that. He was probably a beggar, probably unmarried, and he was an untouchable. Again, considered cursed by God, an outcast that people avoided, and they looked the other way when they saw him. This is sad. It's really sad. Sometimes we just read the narratives in Scripture and just go by them without actually sitting and thinking about the details. This is really sad. But there's hope for this man. And there's hope for him because a group of people brought him to the Lord Jesus. And they were probably family or friends that he had. And probably not particularly religious according to the Jewish standards. They brought him to Jesus and so this man has hope. And this man was not from the village of Bethsaida. Look at verse 26. Jesus tells him to go home after he's healed and not even enter the village. So this man's not from Bethsaida. So this man's actually been brought to Jesus from another town, maybe miles away. We don't know. But it was probably a bit of a journey, especially considering that he's blind. So this is probably a task. It was a journey to get him there. But his friends brought him nevertheless. And they begged Jesus to heal him. They're pleading with Jesus to have mercy upon their friend and touch his eyes and make him whole and let him see. But notice this. The blind man is not begging with them. His friends are, but he's not. He doesn't say a word at this point in the narrative. He's not like blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10 who famously cried out, Son of David, have mercy upon me. Right? He's not like Bartimaeus. As far as we can tell, this man... And this account is silent. We're, we're not told exactly why, but maybe he doesn't believe that Jesus can heal him. Maybe he doesn't believe the reports about Jesus. Maybe this man has been to false healers before who just took what little money that he did have. Or, or maybe he's seen enough uh, false doctors who prescribed him superstitious eye ointment, took his money and left him hopeless. That was a thing that happened back then. Snake oil salesmen have been around for a long time. Whatever the reason, this blind man is silent. But his friends aren't. The blind man won't ask Jesus for anything, but his friends are begging on his behalf. They're begging Jesus to have mercy on him and restore his sight. You see, the the blind man may have not believed, but his friends, at the minimum, believed that Jesus was a healer and could do it. So they brought him to Jesus and begged on his behalf. And I just want to take a brief moment here and step away from the text. I, I can't let this one go. There's something for us to learn already in the account, and it's something from the friends of the blind man. I don't want you to lose this. Now, were they believers? I don't know. 
Probably not. That's as far as like believing, like repentantly believing that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God. They probably had just heard that Jesus was a miracle worker and could heal the sick and even raise the dead. So they brought their friend, right? That's what you would do. They believed what they had heard about Jesus. Had they heard his entire message of the kingdom of God? Probably not. But they heard that he could do a miracle, so they came. But for us, there's a spiritual lesson to be learned from these good friends of the blind man. And that is this. Good believers beg Jesus on behalf of their blind friends. Like, this is good. I can't, I can't let this get away. So let me, let me just ask you this, Christian. When was the last time you earnestly brought someone to Jesus in your prayers and begged him to give them sight? I mean that. This isn't just a flyaway point. I thought maybe it would be when I was writing this, but this is, this is huge. When's the last time you begged Jesus to give someone sight, spiritual sight, to see the truth? Right, Because we all know that we're born in spiritual darkness and cannot see. We are reluctant to come to Christ and will not come to Christ on our own. When's the last time that we begged Jesus to give someone sight that we know is blind? When's the last time you begged Christ to grant sight to sinners and let them see their sinfulness? And let them see their need for forgiveness from him? And when I say beg, I really do mean beg. These people... The text says these people begged Jesus. They were not being half-hearted, right? And let me say this, right? My Calvinist friends, look at me. I'm one of you. They weren't being fatalistic about this man either, were they? Well, either he will or he won't. It doesn't really matter. You know, he's probably already made up his mind, although we do believe God is sovereign and has ordained all things. Nevertheless, they actually begged Jesus. They actually interceded for their friend, and they meant it. They interceded for their friend who would not intercede for himself. And they really believed. Right? That's why they came from another town. <laughs> they, they believed that Jesus could. They knew he had the ability to heal this man and give him sight if he was willing to do so. They believed that he could. And so in faith, they begged him to help. So Christian, I, I just want you to know this. I want you to, I want you to, to, to see this. This man's blindness parallels with the fact that human beings are born spiritually blind and in their sin. And since we know that very well in this church, I want you to be reminded of this. Your unsaved friends and your unsaved family will not and cannot intercede for themselves. They're unwilling to ask Jesus to give them sight because they don't even know that they're blind. They don't know. They don't know their need for Christ. They don't even know they have any need. They're not going to intercede for themselves, just like the blind man didn't. They're not going to ask, but you know their need. You know that they need to know Christ, so you must pray. We must pray for our unsaved loved ones that God would grant them sight like he did for us, because we know if he doesn't grant them sight, they will remain blind. One of my favorite songs says the blind won't gain their sight by opening their eyes. They're still blind. We need to ask God to do it. Because the man in our story would have remained blind if it wasn't for our friends taking him to Jesus and begging Christ on his behalf. He would have stayed blind. Let that be a lesson to us that we might imitate this good and godly example. Christians beg in faith that Christ might open the eyes of their blind loved ones. 
Well, now let's, let's see what Jesus' response is to the request of the friends. Verse 23. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. We'll stop there. What mercy we read of in this front half of verse 23. The people bring their blind friend to Christ and they ask for help. And Jesus' first response is to take the blind man by the hand and begin to lead him. By doing this, Jesus is saying without a word that he will indeed cure this man. He's saying, I will show this man mercy, even though the man did not ask for it himself. This is sovereign grace. I want you to pick up on that. The man was not asking Christ for anything, and Jesus decided to have mercy upon him, because that's how he does it. (laughs) To blind sinners who will not come themselves, he will still have mercy on them if he so chooses. But isn't this a beautiful picture of the compassionate character of our Lord Jesus? He takes the blind man by the hand, and I think Mark intends for us to see a tenderness and a personal element conveyed in this wording. Right? Th- think about it. Jesus is leading this man not into a building, not just around the corner for a little bit of privacy, but he's leading him out of the village. This is a trip that they're going to go on, maybe kind of a short trip, but he's taking him out to probably a rural area. So you can imagine the Lord Jesus taking this man by the hand and leading him around. Just a little further. We're going to take a left up here. Watch your step. Right? We're on a decline. You get the idea, right? He's actually leading this man. He's carefully and tenderly leading this man who cannot see because he has mercy upon him. I want you to see just the compassionate character of our Lord. This is personal. Right? Jesus did not tell one of his disciples to take the blind man's hand and help him. It's not what he did. He could have. He's the Lord of glory. He could have said, I don't want to touch this guy right now. Peter, grab him. Right, But no, Jesus takes him by the hand himself and guides him. And I don't want you to miss this. Remember the context of what it means to be blind. Jesus is touching an untouchable person right now. I love this. He's touching someone that the Jewish elite considered unclean. Someone who's considered cursed by God. He's touching someone who the Jews and their legalism say that he should not touch. And yet this is our Lord. He does this stuff all the time. He constantly befriends the outcast and the unclean. He constantly reaches out to and takes the hands of the ones that he should not. He's full of mercy. And he's full of compassion to everyone who comes to him. Even those who are unsure when they come. Like the blind man, but nevertheless they come. This is our Lord. And I want you to be encouraged by this, sinner. I'm talking to all of us now. Jesus touches the unclean. Be encouraged by this. Jesus, our Lord, is not afraid to associate with even the vilest sinner so long as the sinner has come to him to be made whole and to be washed clean. That means he will touch you. He will touch even you. And note the beauty here. He cannot become unclean by touching you. Rather, by his touch, the unclean person becomes clean. It works in reverse for Jesus. And this should give hope to all of us. The Lord Jesus Christ isn't reluctant to take sinners by the hand, is he? He's not reluctant to have mercy on them. Jesus is willing to take those who are under the curse of God, as this blind man was considered to be under the curse of God. Jesus is willing to take those under the curse of God because of their sin and remove the curse from them himself. This is our Lord, the compassionate Savior. His mercy is matchless. His his grace is generous and his kindness knows no end. We need to see the compassionate character of our Lord. 
But Jesus takes this blind man by the hand and he leads him out of the village. And as I said earlier, most likely into a country area. So now it's just Jesus. Note this, remember this. It's just Jesus, the blind man, and the 12. 14 of them, that's it. There's no one else around. There's no crowds. Not even the man's friends are there. This is a private setting. Keep that in mind. It's going to be important later. The text says, And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? Now, Jesus does something kind of strange here, doesn't he? Again, it's okay to say that it's strange. It's not necessarily disrespectful. This is, this is very unique. He spits on the man's eyes, and from what I can tell, he spit directly onto the man's eyes and then puts his hands on them. Now, why? <laughs> right? Why spit? Right? Why did he do that? Well, I can, I can tell you that it wasn't to disrespect the man or belittle him. Jesus wasn't spitting in his face the way that we think about it, right? This is not a Hank Williams Jr. song, right? Um, we don't, but we don't really have a clear answer, right, for why Jesus did this. The text doesn't exactly tell us, but we have seen Jesus do similar things with the deaf and mute man, right? You remember in chapter 7 of Mark's gospel, he spit on the deaf and dumb man's tongue, right? Or rather, maybe he spit on his hand and then touched his tongue with the spit, but in chapter 7, it was a symbolic act, and I'll argue, though I can't be too dogmatic, I would argue that the same thing is happening here. You know, back then it was common for people to put eye salve on the eyes of blind people to try and heal them. All right, so maybe Jesus was using his spit that way, right? Almost like a medicine. Uh, symbolically, though, right, remember that, Jesus could have done this miracle without spitting. He could have said, see, and the man began to see, right? That's how this could have went down. But Jesus is doing something different for a specific purpose. He's being deliberate in his actions. So maybe the spit is meant to convey something like, I'm going to heal your eyes, but I don't need salve. I'm going to heal your eyes, but I don't need medicine. I'm not a doctor, and I'm not a magician. By spitting, Jesus is showing that the power comes from him because the spit comes from his mouth, not from anywhere else. So maybe that's what's being signified here. But regardless, Jesus spits on the man's eyes, touches them, and then asks, do you see anything? It's the only time Jesus ever asks someone he's curing, how's that going for you now? It's the only time he ever asks this in any of his miracles. He always just says, you're healed, now go. Right? That's always the answer. But here he says, do you see anything? And the man looked up, verse 24, and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Quick word here, the blind man is not blind anymore right? He said, I see. That's the first thing he says. Do you see anything? I see. I see people. So a miracle has already occurred. A man who was stone cold blind can see now. But something strange about this, because the man is not completely restored. He can see people. He can see the disciples, but they look like trees walking around. But again, the man is not blind anymore. He can see. It's just that he can't see clearly. And now what happened? Right, what, what has happened here? Um, did Jesus run out of power <laughs> or something, right? As, as some liberal uh, theologians would try to tell you, he must have run out of power. Or was this man's blindness a particularly difficult case to heal, and so it was going to take the Son of God two cracks at it, as some of your uh, faith healers on TBN will try to justify the fact that they can't actually do a miracle by saying, well, even Jesus had to try a couple of times. Right, Just fun fact, they actually will argue that. Word of faith movement is bankrupt, but anyway. Um, so what, what, was this man's blindness a particularly difficult case to heal? What's going on? Um, 
Let's just reason for a moment, shall we? Jesus is God, come in the flesh. God is almighty, right? He's omnipotent. So it's not that Jesus had some kind of divine power outage, right? Like that's, that's nonsense. Not only that, but Jesus has raised people from the dead with a word. Right? He's done that already. He's cast out a, a legion of demons with a word in Mark chapter 5. He's controlled the weather with a word, right? Peace be still. So there's no shortage of power in our Lord. He didn't fail to heal this man. He didn't mess up. Know that. Be convinced of that. So what happened then? Well, for whatever reason... Jesus consciously chose to heal this man in two stages. This is intentional. Jesus planned to do this. It's not a mistake. And there's some spiritual significance for us to see. There's something meant for us to see and the disciples to see. And we're going to get into that later on. But know this. Everything Jesus did was on purpose. It was always on purpose. There are no mistakes in the ministry of our Lord. He knew what he was going to do before he did it. This is no exception. This happened on purpose. But I don't want you to lose this. A miracle had already taken place. Genuinely, a, a true miracle had already taken place. The man was not blind anymore. He couldn't see clearly, but he could see some. He was better off than he was before. And that came from a touch from Jesus. But Jesus isn't done yet, is he? The crowds in chapter 7 says he does all things well. So Jesus doesn't do half miracles, right? Jesus doesn't do half miracles. Hold on to this one. We're going to come back to it later. Jesus finishes what he starts because he is faithful to do it. Remember that. Verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. The miracle is completed. The miracle is completed within moments. Right. So just so you know, if the faith healer people will ever say, you know, we've got to take a couple cracks sometimes. You've got to come back tomorrow. Jesus finished it before the guy got up, right? It was done in a matter of moments. So know that, right? The miracle is completed, and the power of Christ is clearly shown to the man and to the twelve. Right? After a second touch from the Lord Jesus, this man's sight is completely restored. When Mark writes, he saw everything clearly, the words there in the original mean he saw everything clearly from afar. Right, from afar, he could see close up and far away. He could see everything. So this man has been restored to absolutely perfect vision. He can see it all clearly. By the touch of the Lord Jesus, this man has been healed. The blindness that remained, that clouded his vision, is now dispelled entirely. And this reveals to us the identity of our Lord Jesus. Right? Something that we've seen time and time again that I will continue to trumpet forth every single time we see it, because that's part of the point of Mark's gospel. But it's something that the disciples haven't gotten yet at this point. The fact that Jesus has the power to give blind people sight is a sign of his divine authority. It's proof that he's God, that he is the Son of God. In Psalm 146, verse 8, we read this, Yahweh Right, the Lord, God, Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Right? So it is Yahweh, it is God who makes the blind to see, according to the scriptures. This is something that only God has the power to do. God has the authority over who will see and who will be blind. He has the power to give sight, and he has the power to strike blind. Remember Moses' interaction with God in Exodus chapter 4. Isn't I 
who make men blind or seeing, right? So this is only God who has this kind of power. So this miracle is an expression of the deity of Christ, that he has been sent by God, commissioned with work from God, but more than that, he is God who has come to visit his people. He's God who's come in the flesh to restore the sight of his people so that they might behold him because he's come. Think about this for a moment, not just a quick one. The first face that this blind man saw is our Lord. God has come so that the people might behold God in the face of Jesus Christ, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians. That's why the Son of God came. But not only does this miracle testify to the fact that Jesus is God incarnate, but this miracle also reveals that Jesus is indeed the Christ, that he is the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah is prophesying about the coming of the Messiah. And as he's prophesying the very words of God concerning the Messiah, it's an intimate scene here. God is speaking to his anointed one, to his Christ, to his Messiah. And we read this. Isaiah prophesies, I am Yahweh. I have called you the Messiah. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah had foretold that God would give the Messiah as a covenant for the people, the people of God, and that the Messiah would be a light for the world, and that this light would open the eyes of those who are blind and bring those who are in the prison of darkness into the light. And now we see Jesus literally doing this. What Isaiah spoke of was symbolic. And now we see Jesus literally fulfilling these things. He's literally giving light to blinded eyes, literally dispelling the physical darkness in the eyes of men. And this is a sign. Right? This is a sign to signify to all those who care to look and behold that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that with him comes true light, that is the light of the kingdom of God. The Messiah has come in Christ to free sinners from the shackles of their natural darkness and blindness and set them free to live in the kingdom of God with full sight of glory and truth. This miracle is proof that the Messiah has come. And that Jesus Christ is that Messiah. And that the darkness of sin was being dispelled one person at a time. One prisoner was being freed at a time as they come to Jesus in faith. This miracle testified that God was at work in Christ to redeem his people and usher in the reign of his anointed king, Jesus, so that the nations, the peoples, would come into the kingdom and the promises given from the beginning would be realized. The promise that the serpent crusher would come, Genesis 3. The promise that the seed of Abraham, that is Christ, would bless the world are being realized now in him. I hope you can see this. I hope you can see that Jesus Christ is the one who dispels darkness and sets free those who are in the dungeon of sin. I hope you can see that he is the light of the nations. I hope you can see that he is the covenant. He himself is the covenant for the people of God. The one who has accomplished the terms of the covenant of grace by living and dying for sinners in order to save them and meet God's righteous requirements to save them. 
I hope you can see that he is the promised one who has come to save his people and give them sight. Know this, please know this. There is no spiritual sight apart from him. There is no freedom from the darkness and misery of sin apart from the Lord Jesus. That means you must come to him. You must look to him to be restored. You must come to him to be saved. You you must have him apply his grace to your darkened eyes or you will be blind and lost and you will perish for all of eternity. You need him. You need his mercy. You need him to open your blinded eyes and save your soul. So lift up your head like the blind man and open your eyes to him and be healed. And I know what some of you may be saying to yourself. I can't see. You've already told me that I'm blind in my sin, but know this, if you desire to see, then you can look. Because if you desire to see Christ, and you desire to be saved, then he has already touched your eyes, and he's saying, do you see anything? So open them, and believe on him, and be saved. If you desire to see, then you can look. That's sure evidence that he's already touched you. And now we come to our final verse, briefly, verse 26, and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So having finished the miracle and given this man his sight, Jesus sends him home. He doesn't send the man back into Bethsaida. He just sends him home. This was a private miracle. Jesus doesn't, probably doesn't want all the attention that would come from the village finding out immediately. Right? That would have probably kept Jesus from being able to go around as he desired to do. You remember in Mark chapter 1, He healed the leper. The leper goes back into the city and tells everyone, and then Jesus can't even enter a city after that. Jesus is probably wanting to avoid that. Or, some commentators say, since Jesus has pronounced judgment on Bethsaida at this point, saying, woe to you if the miracles that I did in you would have been done in these pagan cities, they would have repented a long time ago. Maybe it's judgment on them. He's saying, oh, you don't want to see the truth, and I will not send the blind man to back in to proclaim what I've done. Could be that. We don't know. But regardless, the blind man leaves Jesus, a seeing man. He leaves different than when he first came because Jesus had mercy on him. And Jesus chose sovereignly to touch him and give him sight. So we've seen the compassion, identity, and even some of the mission of Jesus already displayed in this miracle. But I think there's still one more thing for us to see. There's another spiritual lesson that we can learn from this miracle, and it's found mainly in how Jesus healed this blind man. Now, I'm going to be straight up. I can't be super dogmatic about what I'm getting ready to say. I'll fight you about it in the parking lot, right? I can't be super dogmatic about this, but but this is where I've landed on this, so do with it what you will, but I think it makes sense textually and within the context of, of the passage. This miracle, I think, almost functions like a parable. Uh, I think this miracle is more for the disciples than it is for the blind man, right? So like, yeah, it's, it's for the blind man. I imagine he left there a believer in Christ. I imagine he left there a Christian. Um, and if nothing else, Jesus did a great kindness by restoring this man's physical sight, even if he didn't leave a, a, a believer. But again, I think it was more for the disciples. Remember, Jesus took the blind man and the 12 outside of the village. So it was just the 14 of them, right? It was in, and that means, I think that means it was intended to teach the 12, he doesn't want anyone around. And, and furthermore, at this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus' ministry kind of takes a turn, and he, he interacts with the public some, but his focus is mainly on the 12 from here, out, here on out. And I think this is part of that turning in the story, or rather in the gospel narrative. 
So Jesus is focusing on his disciples here. And you'll remember again that Jesus has just given a rebuke to his disciples in verses 17 through 21, the passage immediately before this one. And the rebuke was, why? Because they had eyes but weren't seeing the truth about Jesus. They had seen all of his miracles and heard him teach, but they still didn't understand. And then in this miracle, Jesus heals the man in two stages. He lays his hands on the man the first time, and the man could not see clearly. Then after a second laying on of hands, the man could see everything. He did that on purpose. Jesus is making a point. After the initial laying on of hands, the man wasn't completely blind. But he didn't yet see everything that he was supposed to be able to see. But Jesus wasn't finished with the blind man. He touched him again and made sure the job was finished and that the man could see clearly before he left. Jesus is giving a lesson to his disciples, again, almost a parable. And I think it was designed for their encouragement and to show them the the nature of their Lord. It's as if Jesus was saying, if, if I could be so bold, in his actions, Jesus is saying, you see, but you don't see clearly. You're not stone cold blind, but you don't see everything that you should. And you need to grow in your sight. You need to see more. And I'm the only one who can make you see. So you need me. You're blind and helpless without me. But I am good. (laughs) And I'm kind and I'm faithful to finish what I began in you. And I will make sure that you see just like I did with the blind man. I think that's what Jesus is conveying to his disciples. You see, he will grow his disciples. We know how the story ends, right? We've read the book of Acts. Jesus will cause them to see all things clearly, but it's going to be a process, isn't it? Read the rest of the Gospel of Mark and see how stupid the disciples make themselves look from time to time. Read any of the Gospels and you'll see. It's one of the reasons why uh, we can have certainty that the Gospels are true. Because you don't add embarrassing stuff about yourself if you're making up a story. And these men look like idiots all the time. It's going to be a process. And Jesus, so to speak, is going to have to lay his hands on their eyes again and again and again and again. So the disciples are going to need to stay close to Jesus and pay attention to him. But Jesus will nevertheless see to it that they see. He he is powerful enough and faithful enough and kind enough to make sure that they see all things clearly eventually. And this says something to us. And it's good to be reminded and humbled by it. Right? So here we're in your application now. It's going to be a minute. So here's where we're at. All of Christ's people, Christians, right? Disciples of the Lord Jesus All of us have received the touch of Jesus on their spiritual eyes. What I mean by that is we've all been converted. And it was instantaneous. It was instantaneous our conversion was. We went from being blind to seeing immediately whenever the Spirit of God regenerated our hearts. And we were given eyes to see. We were converted. And it was in an instant, like the blind man when he was first touched by Jesus. We saw as soon as we were touched by our Master. So again, we're immediately changed when we're born again. We're given spiritual sight to see Christ and his truth. But that does not mean that we see it all clearly, immediately. There must be further growth by the mercy and continued touch of Jesus upon our spiritual eyes. You see, the disciples believed, but they just didn't understand everything yet. They recognized that Jesus was unique. They even recognized that he's the Christ. It's our passage for next week. The great confession of Peter. 
but they didn't understand everything that it meant that Jesus was the Christ. They needed the continual guiding touch of Jesus, and we need the same thing. We need continued teaching from our Lord. So hear me, if you're a Christian, you do see, but you do, but you probably don't see as clearly as you think you do. Now, before you get too far ahead of me, I am not a postmodern, right? I'm not saying that you can't see anything and that it is impossible for you to know truth. That's stupid, right? I'm not saying that at all. That, that's serious. That's really dumb. Ask, ask Professor Merriweather. Postmodernism is, is ridiculous, right? It, it's, it's foolishness. You can know things. To deny that Christians can know things for certain is to deny the perspicuity of Scripture. But Scripture itself said that the, that the Word of God makes wise the simple. It's understandable. So I'm not being a postmodern here. Christian, you can see. You have been converted. You do see the big picture truths of Christ and the Christian religion. You do see that you're a sinner who deserves to go to hell because of your disobedience to God. You do see that Jesus is the Son of God. You see that Jesus lived, died, and was raised from the dead in order to save sinners. You see that right standing with God comes by faith alone in Christ alone. You see that those who belong to Jesus desire to obey him. And in gratitude, walk closely with him. You see that the word of God is precious and sure. You see more than those things, I'm sure. But you get the idea. You, you see the big picture truths. And you believe them. You've had your sight restored, no doubt. You know the things you know, and you know them clearly. But we've all still got blurry vision on something. And if we think we don't, then we're foolish and probably very arrogant. So maybe you've got blurry vision about the fact that God loves justice. And when I say justice, I don't mean BLM justice. I mean actual biblical justice. Maybe you're blurry on the fact that God is a God of justice and that he's a God of judgment. Or maybe you're blurry on the fact that God actually loves his people and that he's actually very patient with his people. Maybe you're blurry. I hear this from you a lot. You're blurry on what is man-made tradition and what is actually from the word of God. Maybe you're blurry about Christian ethics in certain areas of life or how we need to think and act in accordance with the word on certain issues. But you can see, like the blind man, your sight has been restored and you can see the big outlines, right? You can see the big contours of the truth. But maybe some of your spiritual vision is still distorted. You, you get my point. And so what do you need then? You need the same thing the blind man in our story needed. You need a touch from the master. You need a continued touch from Jesus to give you more clarity. And how do you get that? Well, we're not charismatic, so you're not going to get zapped into you, right? That would be pretty cool, right? But we don't believe that. You're going to get this by being near to Jesus. The man in our story, or rather our account, did not get up and walk away after having only part of his vision restored, did he? He said, Jesus, I can't see everything yet, and he stayed there. And how are we going to go near to Christ? How do we stay near to him? Through his word. By reading and listening to the preached word. By thinking about what we've heard and what we've read. By meditating on it and immersing ourselves in the word of God. That's how we are going to hear from our master. But not only through being immersed in the word, but we neglect this, don't we? By prayer. By going to him and pleading with him to continue to touch our eyes. So Christian, as part of your application, would you pray... That our Lord would help you to see as you listen to his word. Would you pray for that? Would you ask him to teach you 
as you further hear from him in the scriptures. May God help us if we think that we see everything clearly, because we don't. None of us have arrived. Especially in this political season, I think it's fair to say that whatever aisle, side of the aisle that you're on, sometimes we get Christ blurry because we confuse him with our political parties, man. And that's just one example. We can get a blurry vision of Christ. None of us have arrived. We all must grow that we might see him more clearly. And we all need a touch from Christ in order to see. We need Jesus to do it. And the beauty of this text is that we see in it the promise of Jesus to lay his hands on his disciples again and again as we stay near to him. He promises to restore more and more of our sight as we humble ourselves before him and say, I can't see everything the way I should. Help me. He promises that. And we have confidence that Jesus will do it. Why? He doesn't leave a job half finished. He will continue to be patient. He will continue to grow us. He will continue to love us. He will continue to lead us by the hand. And then one day, the beautiful thing is that when this life is over or the Lord returns, Jesus will make sure that we see him. Literally. Face to face in glory. That's, that's clear. We have the promise from him. And why is that? Why do we have this beautiful promise? Because we've merited it? Because we deserve it? Because of our efforts? Far from it. We deserve to be left in the dungeon of darkness that Isaiah talked about. But because of his great grace and his great kindness towards us, he will do it. We will see and we will see clearly more and more progressively throughout this life as Christians because Jesus is faithful. He is faithful to those whom he has called out of the world to be his. He is faithful to those whom he has covenanted himself to and committed himself to. The disciples had just begun to see, but they would see more. And the same is true for us. We will grow. And we will grow because the master is not finished with us. I'll leave you with this. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your great patience with us that, you, that we see in how your son interacts with this blind man. God, we thank you uh, for the patience and mercy we see in the graciousness of the Savior towards his disciples who are dim-witted and dull and slow and stubborn. And God, we confess we are often the same. And we ask for your forgiveness for being slow to believe and slow to see. And we ask for your mercy. We have the promise of your mercy. So God, believing that the one who promised is faithful, believing that you are faithful, we ask that you would continue to be patient with us and that you would break our stubbornness by your mercy and love and discipline so that we might heed the words of Jesus, that we might see him clearly, that we might grow, that we might let go of every preconception or whatever it is that we have about what we think about Jesus, that we would see Christ in your word clearly by the work of your spirit. God, have mercy upon us and help us. And we know that you will because you don't half finish anything because you are the faithful one. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.